0: Hello, this is Eniosh, And this is Steven. And we are the Basin Conspiracy. Katrina is not with us today. Last episode, we talked about ethical um, theories. Yeah, moral philosophy, moral philosophy in general. And while we were doing that, afterwards, I said, you know, there's this guy uh, named Alonzo Fife who has a blog called The Atheist Ethicist. And he was a huge influence on my ethical thinking uh, over the past decade or so and how would you guys feel about just talking to him for a little while and they said yeah sure that sounds like a good idea so i got into contact with him and he agreed to come on the show and this is our interview uh Steven and me with alonzo fife
1: the sound quality was a little touch and go we ended up taking a break part way through to go reset the router we're not sure where the problems are coming from but uh do forgive the subpar audio quality anyway thanks hope you enjoyed the episode
0: uh, okay, now that we are actually recording, I would like to okay. uh, introduce you again. Uh, this is Alonzo uh, Fife on the line with us. He is uh, the he blogs at the atheist Ethicist blog and I have been a fan of his for a long time. so as a follow up to last episode, we decided to call him and talk with him about uh, moral theory uh, Alonzo, I'm sorry I interrupted you earlier. Could you introduce yourself and briefly tell us about desirism?
2: Okay, my name is Alonzo Fife. Um, when I was in uh, junior high, um, I got interested in moral philosophy. What I noticed was that um, there were a lot of different people making a bunch of different claims, and I wanted to know which ones were right. So, um, well, that got me into moral philosophy, which I've been studying for quite some time. Um Desirism is the idea that actions really aren't the primary object of moral evaluation. When people evaluate or make moral evaluations, what they're actually evaluating are desires, and uh, the evaluation of actions is derived from that. So, a right act is a is the act that a person with good desires would do. Um, it's not uh, right in itself or for its own sake.
0: And usually the first question that get, gets asked when someone hears that is, what makes a desire good?
2: What makes a desire good is its capacity to fulfill other desires. One of the main things about desireism is it holds that desires are the only, um, well, the technical phrase is it's the only end reason for intentional action. The only reason that you have to do something or to avoid Something is because it either fulfills or it thwart[s] a desire, um, and that also applies to that. That applies to evaluating anything. Everything is evaluated according to its relationship to desires, but that includes other desires. Each desire is evaluated according to its capacity to either fulfill or thwart other desires.
1: Is uh, desireism your term, or is that uh, does that go back further?
2: more or less it's it's my term or it's it's the um, the term that's applied to to these ideas that I came from um it uh, came about in in part I had a couple of people convince me to adopt the term desireism.
0: originally I believe you called it desire utilitarianism
2: yeah um it was originally called desire utilitarianism which is a uh, version of the uh, of mode utilitarianism which um, came out by RM hare no um, Robert Adams um, in the 1974 journal of philosophy uh, desire desire utilitarianism it's pretty much the same thing except it holds that desires are evaluated according to their capacity to maximize utility and then the question is what is utility and why does it deserve to be maximized Ultimately, when I came to the idea that a desire has to be evaluated according to its capacity to fulfill other desires, that meant dropping the utilitarianism aspect and just adopting
0: desireism. So would you, did you become convinced that what utility is, is desires being fulfilled? Or did you just change what you actually think the correct evaluation of things is?
2: Well, desires being fulfilled, there's no such thing as an Intrinsic value. You can't identify something in the the universe and say this has value for its own sake. Everything has value because of its relationship to desires, and that that applies to desire fulfillment itself. It doesn't have any type of intrinsic value. If, for example, I like chocolate cake, if I'm eating chocolate cakes, then that's a good thing because it fulfills my desire to eat chocolate cake, but. Desire fulfillment itself isn't what has value; it's the eating the chocolate cake that has value to me, because I have a desire for chocolate cake.
1: So, when you use the word desire, is that the same kind of thing that, um, say, you know, a, a lion has a desire to catch prey animals, or is it something that uh, we, we we ran into this a little bit on our last episode? We were talking about um, that. In my experience in the in the field of moral philosophy: most consideration of things that can be considered moral agents are uh, rational agents um, that exclude children, or I guess human children, mentally infirm humans, and basically non-humans. So it wouldn't make sense to morally judge uh, a cat or a dog or uh, whatever. So does desirism uh, encompass the desires of non-humans in that same regard?
2: It, it Well, animals have desires, which means animals can be harmed or are benefited. Uh, I don't think that, that part is controversial. Now, as far as holding animals morally responsible, that would be kind of a waste of time because they can't understand the moral claims. So that's, that applies also to young children or to um, the mentally infirm. So they're not moral agents, but they are what's called moral patients. They can be the, the subjects of morality, even though you can't hold them morally responsible for their actions.
1: That makes
0: sense. I I liked the distinction that they still have desires, but, uh, okay, I guess I'm skipping ahead here, that uh, the tools of moral instruction tend to be things like reward and praise and condemnation. And since they don't have the ability to to reward or praise or punish us, that it makes it very hard for their desires to be taken into our calculations.
2: Well, yeah, that's right. Uh, They don't have, um, they don't have the capacity to know that they can modify our behavior by modifying our desires, the way we do to them, and and we do do that to animals. We do punish and praise animals as a way of modifying their behavior to, to suit our interests. Particularly that particularly applies to uh, pets and trained animals.
0: So can uh, can, I guess I, I skipped ahead, and I want to walk back a little bit. This whole concept of desires being not just things that are what we, uh, not just things that are evaluated, but things that are altered by humans.
2: Yes, desires can be molded, and that's where the idea of uh, praise and condemnation, or reward and punishment, come in. Is that's the way that uh, that we change the de- desires of other cre- other creatures, other human beings. When you praise something, you create in the other people a stronger desire to do that, which is praised. Or if you reward something, um, it creates an, an interest in doing that, which is re- rewarded. And that gives us a reason to reward such things as charitable actions or honesty or um, kindness. And the, uh, the opposite is true with respect to punishment and condemnation. That tends to form an aversion to certain types of things or certain types of acts. So we have reason to condemn and to punish things like um, breaking promises or taking other people's property without their consent or vandalism or assault. We condemn those things in order to create an aversion to those particular types of actions.
1: How do you weigh competing desires? Uh, Say, uh, someone's desire to eat, a Chicken sandwich and a chicken's desire to not be made, or any other two examples. I guess what I'm asking in general is, uh, when desires conflict, how do you? What's the? Is there a formula for resolution?
2: Well, desires do have a weight. Uh, you notice that whenever you act, you have conflicting desires, but you you have the capacity to consider some of them being more important than others. Some of them are stronger than others. Some are weaker, and it's the uh, that is true on an interpersonal scale as well um, one person has a strong desire for something another person has a has a weaker desire but i um i do need to, to warn against the one of the things that desirism doesn't do is it doesn't say that you weigh all of the desires and you do whichever fulfills the most and strongest desires as a moral principle um it evaluates desires according to their capacity to fulfill other desires so it, it it seeks a type of harmony amongst desires it seeks desires that don't conflict
1: i can see that i guess but when they do i i guess um what am i trying to say i i come from a utilitarian disposition so i'm trying to think of a way to not think about it in, maximi- in the terms of maximization I just, yeah, i'm still curious do you know if you know so the utilitarian has a pretty pretty solid stance on uh you know like eating animal products or something they'll say well you're the pleasure you get out of eating uh, whatever hamburger doesn't outweigh the, the pain that went to making it, etc. Uh, you know, certain conditions not having been met or something. Um, do you? I guess does desireism a mode? I guess for how to how to answer those dilemmas.
2: Well, let's um, desireism would look at, at what's true about that particular situation or these types of situations. Yes, animals have desires. Unfortunately, they can't um, mold our desires because they don't understand the concepts of praise and condemnation, so they can't uh, get us to uh, dislike the things that would hurt them. If the But humans do have a reason to make sure that other humans are kind and, and are unwilling to inflict pain on other creatures. If you're willing to inflict pain on other creatures, you may be willing to inflict pain on other humans, and also um, humans have the capacity to care for animals, and if I care for an animal, I have a reason to cause other people not to harm that animal. So um, we do have reasons to um, to mold the desires of other humans in order to, to um, protect and care for animals.
1: For sure. I, um, I think I'm still trying to get my head around the, the goodness in the satisfaction of a desire, is that one of the the main things that is going on here? that I'm still trying to understand.
2: I guess. Yeah, that's actually the the biggest uh, problem with desireism. The biggest problem that people have is the idea that they want to in- interpret it as desire satisfaction having some type of intrinsic value. What matters is that a desire is satisfied, and that's, uh, that, that's not the way the theory works. Um, if I have a um, one of the examples that I use is I just imagine a planet with their, there's one being on the planet. I, I tend to call him Elf. And he has one desire, which is a desire to gather stones. So him gathering stones doesn't have any type of intrinsic value. Nothing in that planet, in that world has intrinsic value. However, gathering stones is an action that has value to Elf because Elf has a desire to gather stones. So um, a utilitarian would look at this right. A utilitarian would look at this from the point of a, an observer looking down and say that because Elf's desire is satisfied, that that has some type of intrinsic goodness. Desireism says if you're looking down from the outside, nothing has value unless the person looking down also has a desire, and it's only that desire that anything that he sees has any value so <clears throat> if i'm looking if the impartial observer is looking down sees elf gathering stones knows that elf has a desire to gather stones he's completely indifferent to that that fact unless he has an interest in desires being fulfilled
1: gotcha yes yeah, so i think i think i understand
2: Okay, so, so nothing has value unless you can <clears throat> you can relate it to a desire. And it only has value to the person with that desire insofar as it fulfills that desire.
1: Yeah. No, I think that, that that sounds pretty clear and it sounds uh, it sounds appealing. I like the the overall idea. I do wonder I mean, so yeah, if I if I have two desires that are conflicting, you know, say my desire to eat chocolate cake, I'm also a fan, and my desire to stay physically fit. Those those desires can't both be fulfilled at that same time. But I obviously feel more strongly for one than the other. But I guess, how would I apply that on a larger scale? You know, it's like if I... Uh, if there are two people that desire two different things? Yeah, I mean, or if they, if both, if they both desired the same thing, right? And they, they didn't care about each other. I guess, whichever one gets it.
2: Um, if you're talking about a, a simple situation like that, you have two people who both are two... Uh, beings that both desire the same thing, um, then effectively, as a matter of descriptive fact, they're going to fight about it. They don't have any other um, any other option available to them, unless you introduce some other desire to uh, um, to resolve it. But uh, desireism is actually interested in molding desires or or choosing desires. So let me modify my previous example a little bit. I had Alf on a planet with a desire to gather stones. That's, the, that's what he wanted. Now, let's introduce a second person to that planet, um, a person that I tend to call um, Bet. And we'll give Elf the ability to choose Bet's desire. And Elf could give Bet one of two desires, either a desire to gather stones like him or a desire to scatter stones. Now, Looking at this from Alf's point of view with his desire to gather stones, and let's make the further assumption that there's a limited number of stones, so what Alf does is he gathers stones for a while, then he's got them all in one big pile and he has to scatter them again. By giving Beth a desire to scatter stones, he can spend all of his time gathering stones. So he has a reason to give um, Bet a desire to scatter stones. That's the option. That, that's the rational choice for him. So the desire to scatter stones for Bet is the better desire, and that's that's the desire that he gives the, that new person.
1: Sounds like a great position for
2: Al. Yeah, but it also turns out to be a good position for Bet because Bet gets this desire to. To scatter stones and there's already somebody in the world that's gathering stones for bet and so that ends up just being in a good position as well and these are the types of situations that desireism looks
0: for so what we would want to do in steve's example is to make someone who has the desire to bake chocolate cakes but not eat them
2: uh that would help <laughs> <laughs> or if they like to bake chocolate cakes just bake enough chocolate cake for two people let's let's generalize that or if that's Look at something in a, in a larger community. I mean, let, let's look at the type of situations that we have. Um, we have reasons to have other people um, tell us the truth for um, because we need uh, true information in order to fulfill our desires. If they lie to us or they give us false information and we use that information, then we're not going to get the things that we're aiming for. So we have reason to cause other people to tell us the truth and the capacity. The tool that we have for doing that are um, condemnation and punishment when they lie and praise and reward when they tell the truth. So we're trying to create desires that actively help people cooperate and get along and fulfill their other desires, and that's the way we do it, and, and that's what conventional morality really consists in, is using these tools of reward and punishment and praise and condemnation to get people to like and dislike certain things that are more useful for us to have them like and dislike.
0: I think one of the things I like about desirism is that it starts out as being a descriptive theory first. That uh, that With any theory, you first have to describe what you are working with before you can make recommendations in it. Like uh, If someone wants to know how to get to the moon, you first have to describe how gravity works and how chemicals interact in order to produce force and what that will do with uh, the materials you're working with and then once you have the framework where you can describe everything that happens you can make recommendations off that given what we know about physics this is what you would do in order to get to moon.
2: right everything in desirism is what's called a hypothetical imperative there are no categorical imperatives in it which means everything is built built on wants if you want to if you want X, what do you have to do to get X? And if, and in the the moral case, for just about everything that I want, I need other people to be honest with me. So given that, uh, and the same is true with you and with every just about everybody else, you have reasons to want others to be honest with you. And then the use of these tools of reward and punishment are, is simply the way of causing them to have this aversion to lying, which is beneficial to you, and they're causing you to have an aversion aversion to lying, which is beneficial to them. But everything's built on hypothetical imperatives.
0: The really uh, what I consider neat aspect of this is that you aren't really working with uh, acts, so you you aren't trying to encourage people to always do the act of telling the truth. What you're trying to do is give them the desire of wanting to tell the truth so that it's self-enforcing. You don't have to worry about someone lying to you if you know they have a deep desire to want to tell the truth all the time anyway, which is why the evaluations are of desires rather than acts because then they, they give the motivation with them.
2: Well, right. That's one of the difference between, right. That's one of the main differences between this and a time type of deterrence theory. If you think about deterrence, if uh, deterrence says you're going to cause somebody not to, for example, take your property, you're going to punish them, and the punish them is a cost that they have a reason to avoid. Now, that works to a certain extent up to the point where they can take your property without getting caught, in which case you have no deterrence value. But what if you can get them to not want to take your property? One of the things about people, if they don't want to do something, then they don't need somebody looking over their shoulder to, 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 uh, to catch them if they should do it. They simply don't want to do it. So if you can create an aversion in people to taking property such that I wouldn't take that for a million dollars, I just don't want to take things from other people, take things that aren't mine, then your property is safe even when you have no deterrence, even when there's nobody watching over their, uh, their shoulder.
1: I guess, but people steal because they want your stuff. This is sort of raising the question for me of how you, uh, let me, let me lay out the problem that I'm thinking and then the solution that I'm, I'm halfway developed to. So the problem, I guess, would be to how, how to decide which desires to try and foster in other people or how to weigh desires against each other to say this is the one that you should have. You shouldn't have this one as much. And I guess one way of, of solving the problem would be saying, would be saying, uh, okay, look, if you want, this it's going to it's going to hurt you in all these other ways. It's going to inhibit your future ability to satisfy your desires, or it's going to conflict with all these number of desires. So really, just want the ones that are the most consistent with each other and with everyone else. Maybe not with the maybe not with the everyone else part. Yeah, how do you decide which desires should be
0: um, increased and which should be decreased?
2: Well, you simply look at the uh, the ones that that tend to fulfill other desires. Like the, you you need. Uh, You go for honesty because everybody needs to have true beliefs in order to fulfill their desires. You go for um, you don't want them taking your property without your consent because then you wouldn't be able to plan and um, do you no good to work on, on something because your property would be disappearing. You definitely have a reason to cause other people to have an aversion to causing you pain simply because you don't like pain. So what you do is you look at uh, the things that you want and you look at how different desires will make it either easier easier or harder for you to get what you want. And those are the desires you have reason to promote in others. And they're the same desires that they have reason to promote in you. And it comes up to your fairly basic set of moral principles. You know, don't lie, don't uh, break promises, um, be kind to others, help them when they're in need. Um, don't take things without consent, that type of stuff.
0: What about in situations like uh, colonial America, where there's a 100 white people who want free labor and one black person who doesn't want to be enslaved? Uh, How how do, why do his desires outweigh the desires of the 100 white people?
2: Um, There you're getting into the idea that uh, what's right as well what fulfills the most desires. But that's not the case. Remember, we're evaluating desires. Now, who has, uh, does anybody have any good reason? I mean, everybody has a good reason to cause other people to have an aversion to slavery. Because if people don't have an aversion to slavery, then you're at risk of being the slave. So the desire for slavery itself is a bad desire, and one that everybody has reason to condemn, as it turns out
1: well it's what, only a scary desire insofar as you have any realistic risk of becoming
0: a slave yeah what if uh, you you instilled the desire not to instill not to enslave people with the same skin color as you in a place where you are uh, a majority then you could get the benefits of free labor without having to worry about being enslaved yourself
2: well if you could
1: i'm not trying we're not trying to stump you and be like ah, gotcha i'm really just trying to, like the way that i assess uh different moral theories is i try to see how they tackle real world problems right uh so this isn't Mm -hmm. if if it sounds like we're just trying to drill you until we get into a corner no that's not what we're trying to do
2: no this is a standard problem and if you um if you go to my blog i actually have a a blog post called um the one thousand sadists objection which is what this is what if a thousand people wished to torture one person would then would desireism say that that's that's a good desire and um so, the, you know, it is a, a common problem. But the, the when you're talking about the, the uh, moral desires, you're talking about desires that are to be universal across everybody. And the way to look at it, like the, the, the 10,000 sadists example, is do you have any reason to be surrounded by sadists? Do you have any reason to be surrounded by people who, who are willing to enslave others? Now, you can... Say, what about we're going to give everybody a desire to enslave only this particular uh, people with a particular color skin? How are you going to do that? And once they have, um, if they have no aversion to slavery, if if they're sitting there thinking, okay, um, I can go ahead and and enslave this person, but then if I enslave more people, I get more labor now you've, um, you're going to create a situation where they're going to try to enslave more people, and that puts you and your descendants at risk. There's also an issue in that, in that uh, des- it's difficult to make specific desires. Desires aren't like rules. You can make rules that are really complex, they have, have lots of exceptions, but when you're using praise and condemnation to mold desires, you're not going to be able to mold desires that are incredibly complex. Like, you can give some an aversion to slavery, but how do you give them an aversion to slavery of people of a particular colored skin?
0: I, th- I think as humans, we do very naturally uh, break down people into in-groups and out-groups, though, and it's, it's very easy to have distinctions between the in-groups and out-groups so that it can be even someone like people who can't pronounce a word a certain way are now the out-group, and all the moral rules that apply to the in-group do not apply to the out-group. I I think, I mean, one of the major advances that we've made over the past few centuries is the expanding of the in-group to include more and more people. Until now, it seems, uh, at least in the Western world, to include all human beings. But uh, I don't think it's necessarily that difficult to uh, decrease the size of the in-group if you wanted to, so that people will feel disgust and aversion towards people of certain ethnicities or religions, And they don't have trouble uh, making separate moral rules for the in and the out group.
2: Um, It is incredibly easy. In fact, there's been experiments. What they've done is they've taken random people and invited them into a room and simply given them two different colored tags, tags and green tags. And after just a couple of hours of of mixing with each other, um, if you ask them, About their level of trust that, uh, they would say that people of the same color tag are are more honest. They would trust somebody with the same uh, color tag to watch over their children. And this is just, and these are, these are strangers. And the only difference is is the tag color. And so yes, it is incredibly easy. uh, But in virtue of the fact that it's incredibly easy, it also creates a great deal of hardship. And it's, hardships it's the the fact that i mean the the violence and the discrimination that people have to endure all of that gives is what gives us reason to work against these um common psychological dispositions and to get something that's that actually treats people according to um their um, their actual worth their um how useful they are, and and to put these things aside, the very fact that they're destructive is the reason to work against them.
0: Okay, so you're arguing that uh, that having lots of separate in-group and out-groups like that will cause a lot of conflict between various groups, and that a society that eliminates this sort of intergroup conflict will be stronger and dominate ones that are very fractious.
2: Well, that's true. I don't. I'm a bit uncomfortable with the dominate ones that are that are fractious because I don't know what, what uh, uh you're meaning by dominate there. But but yes, we do have reason and to get rid of to get rid of this conflict. And look at human history. Um the, just about um every horrible thing that's happened in human history has happened because of this tendency to form in groups and out groups, whether you're talking about the, the Thirty Years War or the Holocaust or the the mongol invasions and it's it's all caused by this disposition to form in-groups and out-groups and the fact of all that uh, that we have reason to avoid all of those hardships are the reasons to fight against this disposition to form these in-groups and out-groups
1: i want to change gears a little bit but only predicated on the possibility have you read um the harry potter book series pardon i'm sorry have you read the uh, the harry potter book series
2: um i haven't read the books i know the movies
1: I can if this was in the movies or not. In the fourth book, and probably the movie, there was a, a house elf that was... So I'm, this is, I am kind of bring the problem of desirism to uh, like created an artificial minds and I'm using house elves as, the, as, a, as a go-to example. Right. The, the house elves basically want to be servants, and so like if they want it and you want a servant, it, it sounds like everybody wins. Uh, there was a part in the fourth book where one house elf is trying... They also have a desire to self-harm if they aren't good servants. And when at one point one was stopped from self-harming and she was in distress about it. And it's hard for me. I'm, I'm, I think I'm still trying to piece together desireism enough because to me it's, it makes sense like, look, I'm going to stop you from hurting yourself and I'm going to try and teach you why it's wrong to hurt yourself. But she was distressed about it. The house elf wanted to hurt herself for being a bad house elf and, you know, letting her do that would have satisfied her desire to do it. Um, I guess... Are there good and bad desires, uh, especially I guess trying to think of something as convoluted as created minds?
2: Um, I only heard part of that because you were cutting off. Could you repeat just the very end of it?
1: In, in Harry Potter, the, the house always had a desire to self harm if they weren't good servants. And mm-hmm. is there? And then at some point in the book, uh, one of them is having that desire to self harm supported by uh, one of the humans in the book. And she's distressed by not being able to self-harm. But it seems to me that that's not a great desire to have. Um, right. But she wants it, and she only really wants it for other house elves, presumably. So I guess, is there a way to say that, no, this desire is bad?
2: Well, a, a desire is, uh, is bad if it thwarts other desires. If it thwarts other desires, then you have a reason to get rid of it. Now, you talk about the, the house elf wanting to harm themselves, but what is the harm? The harm itself is necessarily thwarting another desire. So he has a desire to thwart other desires. And theref- and that desire to thwart other desires is a desire he has reason to be rid of. Um, and that just is the same thing as calling it bad.
1: I think in the context of the book, I think they self-harmed as sort of like a programmed way to uh Make sure they were even better servants. It's like they wanted to hurt themselves because they wanted to be good servants, and if they needed to punish themselves to do it, that's what they did. So they weren't really in, they weren't really challenging their own desires. And if this is too far fetched to be worth considering, that's totally fine. I guess it also. Well, oh, of-
2: well, um, it is necessarily countering their own desires because otherwise it wouldn't be harm. Can you be harmed by something that you
1: like? Oh, I see. Yeah, I guess it hurt. They were pun- they were punishing themselves though.
2: Right. and But in punishing themselves, they were creating a situation that they had an aversion to, that they had a reason to avoid. Otherwise, it wouldn't be punishment.
1: Gotcha. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, another another good example might be, you know, a crazy religious fundamentalist whipping themselves in repentance or something. Uh, they're only doing it mm-hmm. because they feel bad, and they, they want not to whip themselves, but they're doing it because they feel like they have to.
2: Right. Yeah, they have a, a reason to get rid of that desire too. Uh, if it's a, any desire that thwarts other desires, is one that you have reason to get rid of, and the reason comes exactly from those desires that are being thwarted by it.
0: One of the things I really liked about desireism is that it has a a category of moral negligence, which some ethical theories don't. Where is uh, it, it is the fact that you can condemn people and punish them for not doing something that a good person would want to do
2: right this was that was one of the objections that I I first heard of when I started talking about this theory Um, there was a philosopher in the 1900s by the name of James Martineau who his theory was that um, the value of an action is determined by the value of the desire from which it springs Um, uh, what he called what i call motives he called springs of action Um, and one of the objections brought uh, against him by henry sidgwick was that this doesn't account for negligence because negligence doesn't come from a bad desire the drunk driver who just wants to get home doesn't have a bad desire he just has a desire to get home so how can you condemn that under this type of theory and the answer is that you can condemn people for having the absence of a good desire. The the negligent person, the drunk driver, isn't properly concerned with the well-being of other people that we have reason to cause people to have. So we have reason to condemn the drunk driver and anybody else whose carelessness puts other people at risk. We have a reason to demand that they um, take more concern to avoid harming other people.
0: I think this is particularly uh, of of relevance today, uh, these days, because I I consider a lot of these, uh, not necessarily news sites, but uh, places that put forth claims that are ridiculous and wrong, and they simply don't care that they're wrong. And I think that they are harming society in general for putting forward these claims as if they were true and not even caring to check if they are correct or not, I, I, I condemn them as being morally negligent and on the scale of evil for not caring that, that, that they should be telling the truth.
2: Um, actually, I would put them as, as something beyond negligent. I mean, this, um, I mean, they're being dishonest, so we have a reason to cause people to have a, a, aversion to lying, and apparently it hasn't worked with them because they are lying, Um, but in in lying, they are making it... uh, Well, the way that uh, desireism views lying is lying is a type of a a parasitical action. Think about it as putting a... um, If if I had a, a way of controlling your actions so that instead of doing what you wanted, you did what fulfilled my desires if I had a, a remote control or something that I can and put into your head, then uh, then I would be using you for my own ends. And that's exactly what a lie does. What a lie does is it puts something in your brain that will cause you to act in ways that, for your desires, for your interest, and fulfill mine in its place. And we definitely have reason to condemn that type of action. But we have reason to condemn lying, and that's what they're doing.
0: I think it extends further that if it, it it extends to the people who don't necessarily, uh, who just don't care if what they're publishing is true or not. They're like, well, this sounds good and this supports my narrative, so I will spread it without bothering at all to check if, if there's any truth behind what they're publishing. Like the people who honestly believe, for example, uh, now that it's not relevant anymore, that Obama was born in Kenya, and would spread that, they, I think, are at least somewhat morally culpable for not caring enough to to check if that was true.
2: Right. Um, That is is something that I call epistemic negligence, and uh, it is something that we have reason to condemn because it spreads all sorts of of, uh, false beliefs that do actual harms, and we do have reason to to give people an aversion to doing that. Um, The invention of uh, social media i think has made that particular vice much more damaging than it has been in the past when the only people you could talk to are your neighbors uh, but yeah a lot of the things uh, there is a, a, a an obligation to check whatever it is you you find on facebook or what gets forward to you in an email before you pass it on to a hundred other people you know, or it 10 is 10 it 10 is negligence
0: I, I i kind of feel like religion had a role in encouraging epistemic negligence from the very beginning.
2: Yeah, that is well, that is one of the charges I think you can bring up. Well, not religion, it's safe. It's religion is an extremely broad term and encompasses a, a great many things. But the idea of faith, the idea that you could uh, accept certain propositions and completely ignore any type of evidence for or against it, that's a problem. Now, some religions don't put that much stock in faith, although uh, many of them do. But faith itself is something that uh, uh, that I think can be condemned as a, uh, an epistemic negligent way of approaching uh, truth.
1: I agree. I'm not a, a huge fan of faith either. Uh, I like the idea of uh, epistemic negligence. seems to talk a lot. Um, we were talking once about, uh, not on this podcast, but uh, previously we talked about uh, Clifford, uh, William Clifford wrote that essay. Um, what, what it was called? It was the the, the parable of the boat captain. Uh, right. Yeah, and that the the boat captain has uh, a duty to not be epistemically negligent. Um, another real world example might be like, uh, you know, sixties tobacco lobbyists. Right. They they might have mm-hmm. suspected, but they're not going to look into it. Cause that might prove them wrong. So They're going to just say, well, no, we're not going to look at this particular claim.
2: Right. Or you could look at the internet. The energy companies today, with respect to global warming, I mean, I'm certain that some some of those executives are are simply convinced themselves that uh, uh, greenhouse gas emissions can't harm the planet. Um, but still, they haven't. They're producing a product which is it is going to cause a great deal of harm. It's going to kill people, and so that gives them an obligation to look through this evidence objectively and determine whether or not these claims are true and if they can't be objective then their next best option is to find a panel who that can be objective and to ask them to to render a decision for them
0: i want to bring up one of the things that i think is possibly more controversial but which i really uh like and get behind uh the idea that the only there's this uh sense in our society that there should be no such thing as a thought crime. And you brought up once that the only sorts of crimes are thought crimes. That what makes something a crime is specifically the thoughts that were going through someone's head as they were taking uh partaking the action, which is which is how it is that all crimes are reduced to just thought crimes. Did you elaborate on that at all?
2: Well, in the, in the field of criminal law, one of the things that the prosecution has to prove is what's called mens rea or guilty mind. You have to prove that the person had a particular mindset um, at the time that they committed the crime. And to, to illustrate the, the issue, the fact that every crime is in fact a crime, uh, a question about what a person was thinking is how do you distinguish between murder and self-defense? I mean, in both cases, a person aimed a gun at somebody, pulled a trigger and shot and killed somebody. All of the facts that distinguish self-defense from murder have to do with what is going on in the mind of the person when he pulled the trigger. That's what you're punishing him for, is what his his uh, mental states were when he pulled the trigger. Or take a person uh, who at the airport grabs a piece of luggage and walks off with it, and it happens to be your luggage, but your suitcase looks the same as as them. Did they commit uh, an act of theft, or was it an accident? Again, the only distinction between an accident and theft is what was in the mind of the person at the time they performed the actions. So every time we judge uh, a crime, we judge something as being wrong. We are necessarily judging what is going on in their head. That's just a, a fact of the matter when we make moral judgments.
1: I mean, that makes sense. You know, that's why we, we punish, you know, act, whatever, accidental manslaughter less than murder, right? You know, if you're texting while driving and run somebody over, you probably won't be charged with life in prison because you didn't try to murder somebody. You might think that's not the best example.
0: No, no, that's a good example. You were negligent
1: yeah. and you should be punished
0: for that. But that's different from planning someone's murder.
2: Right, the uh, the lack of concern for the well-being of others, um, that is that's evidence in texting or drunk driving. Um, that's um, something we have less reason to punish as severely as the person who actually wants to kill another person. I mean, that's something we definitely need to get rid of. So that's something we need to come down harshly on: is the the a actual desire to kill. Or a even killing um, knowingly—that is, um, the only way you can get to your end is to kill a person. So you do it to get get to an end. Um, those are are much more severe, or are, are things that we have more reason to condemn than than um, than negligence. Although we do have reason to condemn negligence.
0: Uh, we are at about an hour since we first called you. We did have a few minutes there that we lost connection though. Was there anything that
1: you wanted to speak about in, in terms of desirism and what you would like people to know about it? Any good questions we didn't ask? No, actually asked yeah,
2: some pretty good questions. Um, I don't have anything in mind at the time. It sounds like, or seems to me like you, you covered um, a, a lot of the hard stuff.
0: I, I remember back when I was reading, uh, Luke Mulhauser was reading too, and you guys started up a a uh, a podcast and like a sort of a joint project until he went off to join the Less Wrong community. Did, have you been uh-huh. in touch with him at all?
2: Um, a bit, not a lot.
0: How do do you, do you uh, have any idea like how his views have been modified? Because you, I mean. Aside from my parents who helped instill my initial social conditioning and, and my, you know, most basic desires and aversions, I think your writing was probably one of the biggest influences on my ethical thinking. Does he, uh, did, has he been affected the same way? Do you know, uh, anything about his, his current things that are happening?
2: Oh, last, last I talked to him, he continued to accept a desireism. One of the things, and this is actually the thing that, that ended the, our podcast is when you discuss moral philosophy, one of the things that a lot of people seem to be interested in is uh, you're expected to come up with the one right and true definition of morality. And the, the if they think that you haven't done that, then they think that that's a criticism of your view and a reason to reject it. And uh, Luke and I both came to the realization that, that is a um, ridiculous requirement for a theory, um, because all words are invented. There is no one right and true definition of any term. We can change the definitions of terms at any time. For example, the definition of atom. Atom once meant an uh, indivisible particle, something that can't be divided. But then chemists took these things that were that they thought were atoms, and they found out that they had parts—electrons and neutrons and protons. So they simply changed the definition of the word. Um, they did the same thing with planet, and the the same thing is true of mor- of morality. Uh, the, the correct theory of morality isn't the theory that comes up with the one right and true definition. Now, look, um, Luke took that and developed what he, what he called a type of moral pluralism and he he argued that uh people actually have different definitions for the term morality that they mean different things by the by the word according to their background, Were they raised religious if they were then they might have a a uh, an idea that morality is that which uh, obeys God's law. You might have an idea that morality is something with intrinsic value. And the way to get a, away from disputes about morality when we have that type of situation is simply to, to cast the word aside. Don't talk about morality. Simply talk about the facts of the matter that you can agree on. And, and don't get bogged down in terms.
1: I, I like the... Dodging of terms as well, not 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 even dodging, just saying, look, it's going to be pointless. We can sit here and debate about what the word morality means, or we can debate about Uh what we should do in this circumstance, or we can debate how to solve this problem. And you save a lot of time by skipping that first conversation if you can't get any headway. Even just using a different phrasing, I tend to use use the phrase "make the world a better place." When I'm talking about the right action, and Uh but then you got to define "better place." Yeah, but I more or less people, it means exactly what people's intuition
0: says it means. Well, a uh, desireism would say a world that is a better place is one where there are more
1: harmonious desires. Oh yeah, for sure. But I, I guess yeah. So then, rather than get plagued bogged down on well, why would you define morality that way? Then you can kind of just move past that and say, well, this is what I'm talking about. Are we on board? All right, now let's keep going. up so.
2: right, right. What I've learned from Luke with respect to that is um, I can write and discuss um, desireism without ever mentioning the uh, morality just talking about the relationships between states of affairs and desires and desires provide the motivational force to realize a state of affairs um and so i can i can skip all of that and if somebody starts bringing up definitions of uh of morality i simply say tell me whatever definition of morality you want to use and i'll tell you what uh, desireism says is true with respect to that definition and we can go from there but the one of the the worst things to do is to get into what is a false idea that there is one true and correct definition of a term, because there isn't. It's just a matter of convention.
0: I I remember some people complaining when you first when when they first come to realize that uh, a desire is judged uh you know, by based on how many other desires it tends to fulfill or thwart. Uh complaining that mm-hmm. well then it's just all desires all the way down. It's just desires that fulfill desires that fulfill desires and where do you base anything right. on aside from a big web of desires?
1: And the answer is uh-huh. you don't. Right. Yeah. I think that's I think that's it's gotta be rock somewhere. Right. You go you
2: go with the you go with a big web of, of desires, but there's this this same view exists with respect to beliefs. How do you justify a belief? Um, one view is foundationalism, that you take a belief and you justify it by another belief until you get to these self-evident foundational beliefs. But try to identify what those are and you have all sorts of difficulties. The alternative view with respect to belief is called coherentism. Each belief is justified according to the number and the strength of its connections to other beliefs. Um, so uh, you look at it, you justify a belief by justifying it uh by looking at connections to other beliefs, and then you look at that at that those connections, and the job is to create a big complex web of beliefs that all fit together. And desireism says you do about the same thing with desires. Your goal is to create this big web of of mutually supporting um, desires.
0: I like that desireism has stated at least uh, last I read. It's it's been actually a couple of years or so maybe a bit longer, uh, that that there is no point in trying to change desires that are not malleable, that you should not try to punish and condemn or praise and reward. Uh, for example, don't punish a gay person for being attracted to people of the same gender because that is a fixed desire and it cannot be changed by punishment. All you're doing is making their lives worse by punishing them uh, for that desire that can't change. Uh, I I was wondering uh first you know if you still believe that but also how do you view the coming future if we are to create if we have the ability to uh change those believe uh, those desires that used to be fixed desires to really make it so that you can change what you're attracted to or some core things like uh how people feel in relationship to pain or their relatives or basically anything could potentially be hacked at some point. What do we do once we get to the point where any desire can be changed by a few hours with a really good surgeon?
2: Right. Well it's you've got about you've got at least three different questions there. One is (laughs) yes yes it's it's still the case that um praise praise and condemnation, reward and punishment are tools to be used, and to use a tool on something where it doesn't work is is simply irrational. You have no reason to do that. Using a a hammer to to uh, pound in screws is is a waste of time. So if we're talking... Now, you can have bad desires, which which can't be um, affected by praise and condemnation, but then you go through to some other method, uh, if necessary, you can find them so that they can't hurt other people or um, uh, try some other ways of, of altering those bad desires. But praise and condemnation are only used on desires that can be molded by praise and condemnation, only where, the, where, where it's useful. Um, so now some desires are, are moved out of morality um, in, and into the realm of medicine. But then, you're right, then the question comes, um, our medical, our ability to understand the mind is improving, and we may have the ability to um, to alter desires, and that's actually one of the questions I asked with respect to, to homosexuality. One of the arguments that a lot of people gave is, homosexuality isn't a choice, therefore it should not be condemned. Um But that's really not the way you want to go, because what happens when they come up with a pill and it is a choice? The real question to be asking isn't whether or not uh, homosexuality is a choice, but does homosexuality, is it something that causes harm to others? Is it something that affects others in some negative way? And the answer to that question is no, and that's the reason why it's uh, uh, legitimate, why there's no reason to condemn it, not because it isn't a choice.
1: I think that's a solid way of coming about that problem. Yeah, because otherwise, um, you know, other things, I guess that that's a good example for something that, that currently isn't a choice but then it could be. Uh, so yeah, then that that brings the question of like, well, how would you weight your desire uh, to, you know, I guess to make everyone straight versus their desire to not be modified? I think, um, I think the more interesting
0: question is, I mean, there's asexuals out there who are perfectly happy with their lives and they don't have uh, all this this possible sexual frustration and all the other complications that come with, uh, having relationships and on the, there's a lot of great things that happen with relationships too, but would it potentially be desirable to modify all humanity so that no one has romantic desires at all anymore? If, if we, if we come to the conclusion that they are more costly emotionally and economically and what other ways you, you can think of, then, uh,
2: than to have those well, I don't see any reason to, to force it on people against their will one thing, if once you start forcing uh, things on people against their will, you're automatically talking about thwarting a desire, otherwise you wouldn't need to force it on them um, but it is something that, that I think people uh, may want to choose in the future now, with respect to um, the desire that there be no homosexuals which is in conflict with, with homosexuality Well, the question to ask with respect, remember that what we're evaluating here are desires. We're not evaluating actions. We're not looking for the action that fulfills the most desires. Um, We're looking at the desire, for example, that there be no homosexuals. Now, the question is, why have that desire? What good does that desire do?
1: I've never heard a good reason for that desire. That's a religious one.
0: In in a society where the population is
1: dangerously low, there might be a good reason. It wouldn't even necessarily be an argument in favor of heterosexuality. It'd be an argument in favor of like just you know buckle down and reproduce. You know? <laughs> right.
2: <laughs> yeah. So I mean the, that goes back to your question about conflicting desires earlier. What happens if if desires conflict? And the the what a desireism would look at is. Which of those desires can be uh, modified? Can they be modified easily? And what are the reasons for the desire? You're not looking to evaluate an action according to the act, whether the action fulfills the most desires. You're looking at the desires themselves and you're looking at what are the reasons to keep and to promote that desire across the whole population as opposed to get rid of that desire or in some cases, there are desires that you want some people to have, but not everybody. That's the realm of morality that we uh, called uh, non-obligatory permissions. like, uh, like Desire like, to be an architect? Yeah, the uh, desires for your profession. You don't want everybody to be a teacher. You don't want everybody to be an architect. You need some teachers and some architects. So desirism says that's the, one of those areas where there's no uh, moral requirement, there's no moral prohibition, it's a non-obligatory permission you can choose one or the other depending on whatever other interests you have
0: uh, I think I am out of
1: questions I think so too, I'm full of uh, eagerness to read through your blog uh, we just we just heard about uh, you know, I was reaching out to you a few days ago and I didn't get a chance to go through it too much but I, I'm very eager to like you, I started my, my interest in moral philosophy and philosophy in general when I was a teenager and it's always been interesting for me I, I i love reading about uh well really most things but ethics especially because there's the definite immediate connection to real life whereas you know considering something esoteric and boring uh or i guess considering something distant and esoteric is more just like for fun but asking what is the good life how ought i to live those are the questions that Really ought to have a decent answer to before you go out and do stuff. So right. yeah, no, that, that's really interesting. I, I can't wait to get more into it.
0: What's a what's yeah. a
1: good place to or a good way to learn about
0: desireism if you if someone doesn't want to wade through years of back blog posts?
2: Um, well, I did start a, a wiki uh, site on desireism, so that that exists out there. Um, but other than that, uh, at the moment, um, the the blog site is, is the best option, I'm afraid.
0: I remember when I first started started reading your blog, it was within a couple months of when you first started blogging. I actually went back mm-hmm. to the beginning and was able to read all of it. So for a while there, I had read literally everything you'd, you'd published. Um, if I remember correctly, you were inspired to start the blog based on the uh, the results of Hurricane Katrina. Is that right?
2: Um, yeah, that's when I started it. Um, there were some um, arguments going or some claims being made with respect to, to Hurricane Katrina.
0: Can you, can you refresh me on those? What What was it that sparked you to, to start the blog?
2: Actually, at this point, I have to say I don't remember. Oh, <laughs> I do, <laughs> OK. I, I do remember that it had to do with, with Katrina and that I was uh, frustrated with certain um, arguments that were being uttered, but I don't remember the the arguments at the time. Are uh, the arguments that actually inspired that?
1: Excellent. I'll go. I'll get to go dig them up. I know they're near the top or near the bottom. <laughs> and, and now it's led to all this.
0: That's right. Well, I think. It's, it's, it's your... Yeah. I am good. Thank you very much for coming on and speaking with us. It was a pleasure. pleasure. And uh, if you want to send us any links of anything that you'd like us to uh, link to on the post once this goes live. Uh, please sure. please do so. You have my, my contact. And once okay. this goes online, I will send you a link as well
1: if you want to hear it.
2: Okay, sure. Thank you.
1: Well, thanks again. I really enjoyed this conversation. And uh, I just learned uh, right before this conversation that you're a Denver local. If you're ever bored and you want to get a drink, let's do it.
2: Sure, yeah. I live up in Lafayette and I work in downtown Denver in Lodo.
1: Awesome. We'll we'll be in touch. Oh, 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 oh. One real quick question
0: before we go. since This is the thing that I've been kind of curious about. Uh, sure. How how do you feel about uh, the use of intoxicants like like uh, you know alcohol?
2: Um, other than the fact I don't do it, yeah. Uh, generally, I think it's it's a a weak bad idea. Uh, prohibition obviously doesn't work, so that's not, that's not something that I uh, that I would support because it uh, creates a great deal of criminal activity for no good reason. Um, I don't like the idea of a person impairing their judgment because when people impair their judgment, they um, they put themselves and others at risk of making bad decisions. Uh, that being said, there are also studies that uh, suggest that there are certain health risks. It turns out that people who don't drink um, are as likely to die early as people who drink excessively. And it's only the moderate drinkers who um, extend their, their lives. Um, in that way, and
0: the people who don't drink are so depressed that they don't drink. They end up killing themselves.
2: Well, ac- actually, the the hypothesis is that uh, alcohol provides a social lubricant, and the people who don't drink tend not to have the the strong social connections which are essential in effectively in, in Protecting their own life, you know, having the the friends and the the support structure that they need to handle the life's issues.
0: Oh, huh. yeah.
1: What? Why do you personally not drink?
2: Um, I don't like the taste.
1: Oh, okay. Can't get okay. can't get a better reason than that. Yeah. Well, I'd like to, to uh, clarify my invitation to get together for a drink. It can be a drink of any liquid. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah.
1: Any non-alcoholic liquid. Yes. Perfectly.
2: Yeah. we're happy to
1: yeah well hey that sounds great and uh, once again thanks for talking with us I really look forward to reading through more of uh, The Atheist Ethicist my pleasure All right. have a good evening you too thanks bye bye